Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson. And on today's pod, my guests are members of Marillion, one of Britain's leading and most successful rock bands, and Brian Prothero, singer, songwriter, again British, and an accomplished television actor. Since they were formed in 1979, Marillion have released 19 albums and sold in excess of 15 million copies worldwide. They defy categorization, having emerged post-punk and yet remain influenced by, but not defined, by classic progressive rock. They've not always been fashionable and they exist in two phases, the Fish era and the Steve Hogarth era, Steve having replaced Fish as lead vocalist in early 1989. The band continue to enjoy a very loyal fan base. So loyal, in fact, that Marillion have been a pioneer in successful crowdfunding to pay for their albums. We'll talk with Steve Hogarth and Steve Rotheray, the bass player, in the second half of the pod. But first, let's meet Brian Prothero. If you watch First Dates on Channel 4, you'll know his voice from his narration on the show, but he was also the co-pilot of Air Force One in the 1978 Superman film and has recorded several albums for Chrysalis Records. He's possibly best known for the 1974 hit Pinball, which was championed by Kenny Everett. His TV acting credits include Riley Ace of Spies, Gentlemen and Players, Lovejoy, Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less, Holby City, Midsummer Murders and Doctors. Brian has a new album out, but he started singing when he was 12 years old, when he joined his local church choir. Yeah, I did. I was an alto. I was about 13. And I was in the choir for well, about a couple of years. No, probably less than that. And I used, I used to love singing. Once, once a year, we'd go. There was a, a collection. Uh, choirs from the surrounding Salisbury area used to meet at the cathedral and do to Matthew's Passion or or some great choral work, and I used, to, I used to love that. Yeah. You started piano lessons about the same time? I did, yes. Uh, I went to piano lessons with a lovely lady who used to play organ for the church that I was in the choir for. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed that. I got up to about grade four and then got, and then got bored <laughs> with it. Rock and roll came along, and yeah. so you started to be inspired by people like Cliff and the Shadows. Yeah, I mean, before that, Elvis, uh, Heartbreak Hotel, of course, was the first time that we thought, hello, this is something different. And then Cliff came along and with um, the first real, I suppose, English rock and roll records, Johnny and the Hurricanes as well, and a couple of others. But Cliff was the one that, um, that I was listening to most. And was Cliff the first record you bought? No, Heartbreak Hotel, Elvis. Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis. Okay. Yeah. Even b- before Elvis, there was the skiffle phenomenon. There was uh, there was Lonnie Donegan, who was great, but he was copying the American folk scene. I mean, he was brilliant and brought his own kind of uh, twist to it. But I think I don't think there was anyone else at the time who made such an obviously English rock and roll record that wasn't. It was there was. There were some elements of it, obviously, that were that, that were reminiscent of the American uh, rock and roll records. But it, it was the first time that it was our own homegrown uh, rock and roll record. Yeah. And Cliff had that sort of attitude, didn't he, with the curled lip? He was <laughs> yeah. obviously trying to emulate Elvis, Elvis. Sort of rock and roll, US rock, rock and roll stars. Yeah, looking back now, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't look so convincing, does it, these days? <laughs> no, I mean, I think you can see it was put on, but it was a, it was a brave attempt, and I guess at the time yeah. it gave him an edge, which was what he wanted. 
Yeah, exactly. No, it is. It was great. You then started to learn guitar. So do you remember getting your very first guitar? I think for many musicians, actually getting your first guitar is a seminal moment. Uh, yeah, it wasn't. I had a couple of guitars. I was in a folk group um, quite early on, but I had a guitar before that. I think my first guitar was when I was in tech college at sort of 16, 17 or probably was it even earlier? I, should, I would say fifteen. Mm. Um, I had a couple of guitars. Um, yeah, it was it was a seminal moment. I mean, as soon as you start, when you start playing and singing the things that you love, and you and you suddenly other people are looking at you and starting to be interested, particularly of the female variety, then yes. you think, oh, oh, this is working. This is rather good. I'll stick to this. So that, that was that, that was amongst the motivations for you then that uh, you became oh. more attracted to the opposite sex. Well, it certainly did. Yeah, of course. Um, and it, but it, it, but the I absolutely love the music. I mean, the the music of that time that um, really uh, even even before the Beatles was uh, meant meant a lot to me. But when the Beatles uh, came along in sort of 62, then uh, finally uh, they were they were the biggest influence on me, I think. And I, I, th I thought they were, they were just blew everyone else away. And it was an extraordinary mixture of music that they, I mean, they started off um, obviously copying the Americans, but then branched out very quickly with their own with their own music and were very eclectic and you never knew what was coming next and it was a very exciting period well we'll play some beatles later but let's just go back to you learning guitar do you remember what pieces you were learning on how you started there was a, on an early paul simon simon and garfunkel record there was a there was a version of a track called angie a song, a song called angie wasn't it it was, a, it was a, um and everyone in the folk world was trying to do it it was a piece in a minor and it was quite difficult to do well it was easy to do the basic version but it was quite difficult to do really well with, with extra twiddles <laughs> so did you I, master the extra twiddles I, I i kind of did i kind of did but at the at the time at the early 60s i i joined when i was about sort of 18 19 I joined a folk group, and uh, so we were playing things like Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, bits of Bob Dylan, when the when the ship comes in, um, and I was at that time writing the occasional song on my own. And there was a song called "Climb in My Boat," which is an early effort, which 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 we did in the folk group. We um, and and we came out to London in '65, um, and uh, and did the folk the folk scene then. Um, and and Paul Simon was around at that time, so and we were the same agent, so we were sort of brushing up to, brushing along with him, um, around folk clubs like the Troubadour and uh, Les Cousins, and uh, various other places. Who did you meet? You know, what notables who are yet to be famous did you meet in the various folk clubs? Well, as I say, Paul Simon uh, was he he had the hit "Sound of Silence." Mm. Um, but he was on on his own doing solo performances around the folk clubs then, and uh, I remember, I remember meeting, and then Art Garfunkel came over to join him, and I remember meeting Art with when the three of us in the folk group were um, were looking for work. We sort of we we met him in, I think it was in Soho Square, 
and it was happened to be my 21st birthday and my mother had sent me <laughs> a small birthday cake and a bottle of wine nice and so we shared we shared my 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 bottle of wine and birthday cake with Art Garfunkel. That's very <laughs> rock and roll. I hope you remember. <laughs> you also started to um, nod towards your sort of dual career because you're both a musician and an actor, and you joined an amateur theatre group. Yes, I had a girlfriend who was in this, this uh, amateur theatre group in Salisbury called the Theat the Studio Theatre, and uh, I went along to see um, a review that she was involved in. Um, met a few people there and eventually and and then joined and really enjoyed it and I was I very quickly started to play uh, things that I normally would never be cast in um, I was playing character parts of kind of uh, you know characters that was 50 60 years old when I was in my teens and and loved it and it sort of, sort of took off from there really was there any sense then that you're going to go one way or the other or were you thinking well you know both of these i'm enjoying i can have a career that's both music and uh, and acting i wasn't really thinking about it i uh, they've always gone hand in hand or sort of side by side with mm, i suppose i suppose acting was my main preoccupation at the time i joined a rep theater company in what would it have been 66 uh, and I was still a member of the folk group then so things were I mean I, it was wasn't one that I preferred it was just natural to do both for me well your first job was as a library assistant and then you joined yeah. a hospital in the pathology library as a technician I did indeed yeah not rock I, and roll at all yeah. <laughs> no, it, that, that, that was I, I was supposed to. My father worked um, in the salaries in, and wages department of the of the local hospital, and he was very keen that I got a job because I was good at science and so on. Uh, I was supposed to go into into work at the hospital uh, as soon as I left school, but there was no there was wasn't a place for me, so I did a, a temporary library job, and then a year later I joined the hospital in the path lab and. Uh, and went round, and yeah, I, used to, I used to put on a white coat and, and take blood from patients when I was in the hematology department. Proper job. Yeah, proper job. Oh, yes. Yes. But, but I can't remember how, how long that lasted before I decided that the folk group was something that I wanted to have a proper go at. And the other members of the group were keen of, uh, to come up to London. So I burnt my bridges with the, with the hospital and... Um, when you say bunch of bridges, you, you walked out or you just said, sorry, guys, I've had enough. I'm going to be in uh, FBI now. Yeah, I did. Yes. Yeah. I knew that I, there were, I was there for maybe nearly three years. And I knew from the way that I was studying that I wasn't taking in the information that I needed to pass my first exam. Mm. Uh, so that combined with my... Um, uh, playing with it with um, with the folk group decided me to um, to try that instead and uh, so I so I left the hospital at that time that was quite far-sighted of you obviously knowing that you couldn't be in the hospital lab with your dad managing the wages forever so <laughs> you joined folk blues incorporated when you were 19 yeah. so the Beatles Bob Dylan and others became important to you in terms of just thinking about the artists that you admired uh, yeah, Dylan. We were we were listening to a lot of Dylan, particularly the Freewheeling album, that 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 first or second album of his. I can't remember. Yeah, it was important at that time. What well, that was eighteen nineteen. 
Yeah, the Beatles had just started. I was, well, I would have been 18 when Love Me Do was released. So the Beatles were, were sort of taking over. I remember we both, as a group, we went to see Hard Day's Night and were, we were rather kind of swept away by that. Yeah. Um, but we were, we were, we were playing the folk music of the time and, uh, so there wasn't wasn't that mixture that I that I got into later on. Podcast radio. Brian, you're playing the folk clubs in and around London. It's the middle sixties, and then in 1966, you went into rep theatre. I did. I I was in the amateur group, and the wife of the director of the local professional theatre used to. Uh, direct and act in the theatre group in the in the amateur group that I was in, and she told her husband about me. He I met I met with him, and he offered me a job to start uh, uh, working as a professional actor. So I did an apprenticeship for a while, and then and there was no looking back. I I played I was I was there for about seven months, and then wrote around to other reps around the country, got a reply from. Uh, did an audition for Lincoln Rep, uh, got that, and then was, uh, uh, in 1968, went to Lincoln and was there for, for two years. So uh, by, the, by the end of that, I was well established, as, an, as a, in my own head, at least, as an actor. And what sort of parts were you getting? All sorts. Very, very, I, I think <laughs> I was playing a lot of, uh, I've always played a lot of character parts when I was, when I was younger. I was playing, I mean, right up to, I would say, age 35, 30, 35, I was playing parts which were generally older than myself. And then after that, I was starting playing parts which were younger than myself. So it's a strange, but at that time, I played Viscount Palmerston in Portrait of a Queen. Um, what else did I play? Oh, well, the first, the, my first... Uh, professional part was Paris in Romeo and Juliet, right. which isn't much of a part, to be honest, but um, it started me off and it was uh, ex on this exciting journey that, that I was experiencing. Yeah, um, but uh, lo lots of lots of character parts. The system then was uh, three weekly rep and you'd stay in a company of actors for up to, say, two years, um, almost like a proper job. And you'd be out, you'd be called upon to play parts that you were completely unsuitable for, in so <laughs> many ways. Not only age-wise, which was a great training, really. So that was my training. I didn't go to drama school. I I learned on the job in rep. And you met Martin Duncan when you were in Lincoln, and that was a significant meeting. It was yes, Martin and I. Uh, he became he was an, an acting ASM at the time, and a bit younger than me. And we hit it off straight away. We we used to tour with um, a, a music hall show, a, a variety show, and Martin and I would be part of a, a, a barbershop quartet in that show. So that was how we, there was a musical connection immediately because of that. Also, Martin uh, used to have this um, Super 8 camera and used to make little movies uh, which I sometimes would be involved in, wrote bits of music for them, and we and we became good friends. And and then he would he would write lyrics, and I would write the the music to them. We we learnt 
by um, writing music for the plays that we were in and the music that we just wanted to do on our own. So it was a it was a very good um, training um, overall. That those two years were very important. And Martin's still a friend now. That's fantastic. And great to hear you mentioned Super 8. I haven't heard Super 8 mentioned for many a long year. I know. <laughs> Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. Brian Prothero is my guest. Brian, let's fast forward now. And the first time I heard you was when I was listening to Capital Radio in London. Mm. And I heard the song Pinball. And uh, it was a song they played a lot and supported hugely. And it's um, a very evocative, I think, quite unusual pop song. I mean, let's talk about pinball and the origins of that. Um, It's an unusual song for me in that I would often write songs which were sort of stream of consciousness and not not really... um, attached to a particular story or um, uh, with, they weren't literal lyrics in a sense but they, well, they, yeah but pinball was literally like a diary entry um, something that all the things mentioned were something that I was experiencing at that time 1973 uh, probably it was released in 74. So I was living in Soho, um, in Shelton Street, which was just behind the Cambridge Theatre. I, I used to get up in the morning, on Sunday mornings, and go and get the papers in Soho. So walk over Soho. Um, and the Marilyn Monroe reference it was because there was a Norman Mailer had published a book about Marilyn, and I saw it in a window in Soho. So there was, we had a cat that uh, would eat the, the bread, I mean, would jump out out of you when you were climbing up the stairs. Um, I had flu. I had fleas. I had that terrible sort of rush matting on the floor in my little room. Yeah, um, I remember it well. Fleas. Yeah. yeah, and so it was. Um, and I used to play pinball in a pub called the Cross Keys, which is um, which is not far from where I where I used to live. So it was just a reflection. And my, I was out of work. Um, my God, I'd just been finished with a girlfriend. Um, so it was a sort of, it was a naturally melancholic diary entry, really. It was a chart hit. I mean, it got to uh, just outside the top 20. Were you surprised by that success? Uh, uh, yes, of course. Delighted. I mean, it was, it was lovely. Anyone who makes a record and then hears it on the radio for the first time, it's, it's a very uniquely exciting experience. And I loved uh, working on it. I, I, I loved being in the studio. Uh, and it was, what, yeah, it was very, it got to number 22. <laughs> the, 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 no, the that's good. Thing. I mean, the point is, in, the, in 1974, 22 meant something. It means less now. Yeah. But in those days, that meant you were shifting decent number of records. Yes, yes, it, it did do very well indeed. It, 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 but the funny thing was that I went on Top of the Pops when it was 22. And <laughs> And the week after it went down, which is not supposed to happen. So, oh, that's unusual. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know what I did wrong. Um, but it sort of, um, it became, uh, Kenny Everett particularly um, uh, was a, was a, used to play it a lot and was a big fan of it. Um, but it became a, a radio hit, really. 
and uh, but it didn't get any farther in the charts. But it, it, it did it did all right in America. I, I did a tour in America and did some. Uh, I didn't do any any live dates, but I did um, uh, some radio interviews and so on. And uh, it got I think it got to number fifty something in the top hundred in America. I remember Kenny Everett playing it almost every week. I think he used to play it on his Saturday lunchtime show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it must have it must have got your name out there. I mean, certainly it's the first time I heard of you. I'm sure many other people of you know my age, your age, you know, would have the Brian Prothero name, you know, in music anyway, was starting to get noticed in quite a big way on the back of Pinball. Did that open any doors for you? Yeah, funnily enough, it did the opposite in oh, the theatre world, like the charts. <laughs> Well, no. It, well, it, what it did was it, when I, <coughs> when my agent would put me up for, for a part, there were a couple of times when the reaction was, "But he's a pop star; he's not an actor." Oh. So there was a, a negative side. It was a double-edged sword. So I mean, I didn't mind that too much. I still, I was still working, and in fact, at that time, I was playing another part of a pop star in a musical called "Leave Him to Heaven." which ended up at the New London Theatre um, before Cats was there. And that was from 74, I think we did it in, in the West End in 76, and then it was on telly in 78. Um, so I was still, I was still working. Um, but it was, it, the acting really drew me away from, from a, a, a recording career, uh, I think. Um, and the record company weren't really hearing from me the kind of commercial songs that would be a follow-up to pinball so it was an uneasy relationship until 1976 and they finally thought well we've had enough of them and they cancelled my contract <laughs> east london radio on podcast radio to find out more visit eastlondonradio.org.uk brian plotter is my guest on private lives Let's talk more about your acting then, because as you say, pinball you know, pushed you away for a while from music, ironically. You did all sorts of things. You had a small role in Superman as the co-pilot of Air Force One. You've been yeah. in um, BBC Two, Spider's Web. You've done all sorts of things. Midsummer Murders, Holby City, Spooks, yeah. Riley Ace of Spies. I mean, quite a body of work. Yeah, I had quite a, a variety of stuff without being hugely successful or famous. I was a, a a gigging actor. I was, you know, working fairly regularly. I did a couple of. At the end of the um, the eighties, I had a little sort of um, spurt of of work. Uh, I did a couple of um, of series. I did a, a two series of a thing called Gentlemen and Players for TVS. Um, uh, that was about 87, 88. I did a thing at the beginning of the 90s called um, Shrinks, which was a series which was about a group of psychologists. Um, and I did a Jeffrey Archer mini-series called Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less around that time as well. And what's it like sort of popping into all these different shows? Sometimes it was a one-off appearance, sometimes it was recurring. Uh, I mean, how did you sort of get into it, given you're doing lots and lots of different roles and, and some of these are, are quite small projects, but together it's a lot of work? Uh, yeah, I was used to doing that in, in rep. I mean, you, there'd be a, in, in repertory theatre in the, in the 70s, in the uh, 60s and early early 70s, you, you, as I said, you, it was a very quick turnaround. 
uh, three weekly reps. So you'd, you'd be learning a new part every three weeks. And as I say, something completely different from the thing you've done before and something that you're probably completely unsuitable for. So I was very used to that and very happy to be doing anything that came my way. And you did Saruman in the stage musical version of Lord of the Rings. Yes, I did. Yes. Directed by Matthew Waters. Yeah. At the Theatre Royal. That must have been fun. It was, it, was, it was extraordinary. It was a cast of 50. It was not like anything else I'd ever done before. It was a relatively small part, Saruman. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't as prominent as in the film. And I was probably on the stage, I don't know, for about, out of the three hours that the show ran, I was probably on stage for about nine minutes, I would have thought at the most. Uh, but it was great because it, it was a great social event. Um, as I would say, there were 50, 50 people in the cast, all sorts of uh, acrobats and singers and dancers and actors. So it's a, a really eclectic mix. It wasn't terribly successful. It, 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 it did all right. It, I think it lasted about a year. I came out of it after about nine months. Um, but it was, it was a good experience, except for having to spend half an hour in the makeup room putting all, on all these whiskers, beards and wigs and goodness knows what, which wasn't much fun. Nine months regular work, you can't knock it. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to Podcast Radio. I'm thinking of going back to CDs and maybe even vinyl and putting something out, uh, putting a collection of songs that I'm planning out on, on, uh, on the CD. There are plans afoot. There are plans afoot. So plans then, it sounds, as though for new songs. So you're writing at the moment. I've just finished a song and just, uh, I just had it mastered, um, a, a new song called All the Stars. That'll be the lead track on this collection. And uh, the sort of th- there's a sort of theme of the new collection, which are songs that I've self-released released over the last 15, 20 years. And they're all have a kind of slightly pinball sweet melancholy about them. Um, so I don't know when that'll be out, but um, I'm working on it at the moment. Good to hear you working on that. Will you do any live performances? Uh, the, if I do, it'll be like an unplugged uh, in a small venue somewhere in London, but I haven't decided on where. Yeah, for hopefully next year, when all, well, or the year after, whenever all this madness settles down eventually. Yeah, I mean, a number of artists are now planning dates for 2021. I think hardly anybody's doing anything this year, so this yeah. year's a write-off. But uh, yeah, next year or the year after would be, would be fantastic. And yeah. I think uh, a small, intimate venue, given the sort of the intimacy of the songs, would be just yeah. perfect. I think I think that will happen. And um, my mate Julian Littman will be involved in some way, no doubt. Brian Prothero, it's been a complete pleasure. Good luck with the new material. Look forward Thank to seeing you live at some point. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure. That's Brian Prothero, whose new album is available as a triple CD on Cherry Red Records called Brian Prothero, the albums 1974 to 1976. very much after the Olympics, we as East London were able to show the world that there's a place called Stratford and it's not the Shakespeare one, there's this other place where we built something absolutely amazing that the whole of the world are looking at for a few weeks. And then the, all, the, all the media people disappeared and leaving us with, you actually look at it and you go, well, why isn't there a local radio station for East London? And that was kind of the first thought. Also understanding there's lots of people who could usefully be involved in that so there's those two reasons it's like well, maybe it's an idea to set up a radio station out here 
Just give it a go, see what happens. It really was just like that. We are the voice of East London, ELR. Next, it's the turn of Marillion Steve Hogarth, vocalist and keyboard player, and Steve Rotheray, bass guitarist. When I met them, they're about to go on tour, but the COVID-19 situation has, of course, made live concerts very difficult at the moment. When we met, Steve Hogarth was looking forward to their live performances. Yes, it's, there's quite a lot of dates this time, and they're, uh, they're all, it's more or less a, a symphony hall circuit, uh, with the, the Albert Hall on the end. Um, really, 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 and another 10 really is looking forward to it because it's a chance to get back together with our string quartet and uh, our brilliant French horn player and our amazing flautist who was Young Musician of the Year a few years ago, Emma Halnan, um, and, uh, and graft, graft them on to us. Um, we, we've done it before and it sounded wonderful, so it's going to be great. So everywhere from the Sage and Gateshead to the Royal Albert Hall, you always do very well at the Royal Albert Hall. You seem to manage to sell that huge venue out quite easily. No, that's not true. It's very not hard. hard. <laughs> okay, well, you do sell it out. No, no, we did. We, we, we've only played there for the very first time two years ago. And it sold, it sold out very quickly and we were amazed. I think it sold out in a couple of minutes. Um, which shocked the life out of us. Um, so we're going back to do two nights, and I believe it's it's selling very well. You never quite know the Albert Hall when it's sold out, because all of the dibenture seats are all released towards the end. But the, the sellable bits are sold, I think, um, and it'll be great to be back there. Um, it was an amazing feeling to play there the first time. Uh, we were filming it last time, so there was a lot of pressure and a sense of having to get it right. We're not filming it this time, so we'll all be able to relax a little bit. All right, fantastic. Steve Rothery, let's go back to the beginning there. Now, let's talk a bit about what was influencing you when you were a young Steve uh, at school or in short trousers. Who were the bands you were being sort of turned on to and who you were buying? I think growing up in the, in the 60s, you were exposed to the Beatles a lot, so that was kind of my first real influence and then when I got to about 10 or 11 I was really into film soundtracks I started to collect uh, you know, Ron Goodwin, John, John Barry um, and then when I was 15 I discovered progressive rock um, a DJ called Alan Freeman used to have a show on a Saturday afternoon uh, and I recorded a snippet about the last two thirds of, of the Genesis track The Knife and I just completely fell in love with it and uh, kind of went on to discover all the other sort of the bands in that genre at the time. Um, you know, Pink Floyd and Camel and King Crimson. Um, so that was kind of really my, the bands that had the most influence on me. All right, we'll talk more about that later because um, Merlin have been compared, haven't they, to Genesis and other bands in the past. We'll talk about that. So, so Steve, um, Beatles also for you, I guess. There's actually a, a song I think you both actually bought or were both into at the same time. And we never knew until and you never knew till yeah, now. Just found yeah, out. The purpose of an interview then. Amazing. Yeah, she loves you. Uh, was I got a record player for my seventh Christmas, I think it was. Um, a pie disc jockey, it was called. Um, Very creative. <laughs> and my, my mum and dad gave me She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand, I think, for along with it, you know, and maybe uh, Not Fade Away by the Stones. And so I just played those so you could see through them. And like everyone else, you know, of my generation, hearing the Beatles just was a, a life-changing, electric, exciting, compulsive um, moment in my life that I'm still recovering from. Um, the other band who you mentioned to me earlier was Kinks. 
Yeah, blimey, what a brilliant band. I mean, I mean, if there was any justice, the Kinks arguably would have been bigger than the Beatles because, you know, Ray wrote better words. Um, you know, it's, it's, That's it's, a controversial thing to say. Well, he really, did. better words, yeah? I reckon. Yeah? Yeah, I reckon. I mean, if, 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 you, if you look at um, Waterloo Sunset and um, what else did he write? I go to sleep. A lot... He wrote some lovely words um, that were just a bit more than, you know, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tired of waiting for you uh, was was the one that I just played to death. But I guess I guess Waterloo Sunset and You Really Got Me are the, the sort of anthems, aren't they? All right, we've got two there, so let's get uh, Steve Rothery to um, adjudicate. Which one are we going to go for then, Steve? Uh, you really got me. I think it, when you start learning, learning guitar, there's certain things that you tend to gravitate towards, things that are easiest to play, and that's one of those guitar riffs. That and Hawkwind, really. <laughs> um, right, OK, well, that's quite different, Hawkwind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you know, when, you, when you kind of, you've mastered the art of the bar chord, uh, and, and suddenly this whole new world of guitar playing sort of opened up to you. So, uh, Silver, Silver Machine, Silver Machine and, and You Really Got Me, really. To me, Hawkwind was a blur of strange substances and weird light, actually, as much as the music. Yeah, quite possibly, yeah. So let's sort of work into the Marillion world now. You were not there at the very beginning, and obviously Marillion is really a story of two halves, I guess. You know, your half as vocalist and Fish who preceded you. Yeah, I would beg to differ on the... Um, it depends which, which way you want to split those halves. Well, you're a bigger half, aren't you? I, yeah, I'm more of a... Three-quarters. Three I'm more yeah. of a 70%. 70% of, of the time, in terms of you. time, yeah. Uh, in terms of albums, probably even more. Um, in terms of sales, on the other hand... OK, so my maths is terrible, Steve. <laughs> I, I feel uh, t- told off appropriately. Fish would probably win on sales. Um, but yeah, 50-50, I suppose. I came in in, in 1989... Uh, I think Fish left in 88, so I've been in the band, what, 30 and a bit of years now. Uh, I'll always be the new boy, I guess. Um, but before that you had the band The Europeans. Yeah, it was, uh, we made two albums for A&M Records, um, and a live album, and then we split up and um, I was in a band called How We Live, and we made an album for Portrait Records, which was CBS then. But that didn't really work out, and um, I was kicking my heels for a while. I did a bit of session work. I played piano with the the on the uh, Infected album. They and were it, a good band. They were a big band too for it, a while. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. What's it like going on? You went on tour with those no, guys No, I was well. off, just, just I, studio. I was offered the Mind Bomb tour. You were offered it? Uh, yeah, and, I, and I'd got my head into into doing that with Matt when the phone rang and, and Marillion wanted to meet me. So oh, it, so it was a it choice was of a really the, the, or Marillion? Get your head around that, yeah. Oh, oh, so how did you make your decision? Well, um, I'd got a mate called Daryl Way. Um, who used to play violin with a band called Curved Air in the 70s and he was my drinking mate in Windsor um, and he knew some of the boys in Marillion he said you really want to go and meet them they're really nice people don't write it off you know because um, I was telling him how much I was looking forward to going and doing this the other tour so it was Daryl really that nudged me in the direction of Marillion and then when when I met up with the boys w- we just had a, a very natural sort of chemistry together Matt, of course, was only offering me at all, which, to be honest, is all I really wanted. I, d- I just wanted a chance to enjoy playing and not be un- under any pressure. Whereas the Marillion situation was was back to being at the front in the middle with the, all the pressure to create and everything. I, I was rather hoping to escape. 
Um, so you know, I, I, but but you know, we had a chemistry that was undeniable. It didn't feel like particularly hard work, so um, it made much more, much much more sense. So we're yeah. glad you chose Marillion. My goodness me, we're glad you did. But it, actually, you went into quite a difficult situation, didn't you? I think there were there were all sorts of issues, and there were even legal disputes at that point. It didn't feel difficult because the boys didn't seem terribly bothered when I met them and extremely positive, you know. Um, I said, what do you want? You know, what are you looking for? And they said, oh, well, we've heard what you do and we we like it. We like your singing. We like the words you've written. Just do what you do and we'll do what we do and we'll see what happens. And that was... Very relaxed. That was the direction. Nobody seemed to me... um, remotely bothered the fish had left remotely worried about the future and so that was contagious so we 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 wrote season's end and then we went to the studio and recorded it with a general feeling of this is all going to be fine and of course it wasn't until i was looking down the barrel of actually having to play live with the band that i, I suddenly thought oh hang on a minute what have i what have i done right um so that was the point. Right up to then, I'd, I'd barely given it a thought, which is probably a bit naive. So when Steve Hogarth arrived, Steve Roth three, what was the, your reaction? It sounds like it was a very easy transition, actually. Well, yeah, well, we'd already fallen in love with his voice, so we just needed to see, you know, if we could uh, work together, um, you know, on a personal level. Um, we were working in Pete, the bass player's house at the time. He, his garage had been converted into a little rehearsal room. Uh, and we had some lyrics that John Helmer had already written for us. Um, and we just went in there and started playing around and, and gave Steve, um, I think it was King of Sunset Town, wasn't it? And, uh, yeah. Um, and basically started playing it. Steve started singing and we just all looked at each other and, and, you know, the search was over as far as we were concerned. Of course, Steve hadn't said yes straight away, so he left us w- waiting for a few days, but uh, you were playing slightly hard to get. Playing hard to get. Only, be- only because I was bursting to do this tour with Matt and play the piano, but I wanted to do my little piano solo in Heartland, and it, it meant foregoing that, so I just had to think long and hard before I let go of that. Um, but I mean, what what we decided to do, and I think was the, the, the wisest thing, was we decided to book some residential studio time and go away and be away somewhere living together and working together uh, so that we could drop ourselves into that pressure cooker and and evaluate whether it was going to work on a personal level because I've been in bands in the past where people have tried to murder me and uh, that makes you just a bit more cautious going forward. Well, it means there's no vocalist either. <laughs> just a room full of blood. It'd be a bit of a disaster, wouldn't it? A room full of blood and no vocals, <laughs> instrumental. Well, you'd be amazed. Space players for you. So, first album, Seasons End, come out. Uh, and um, you know, what was, how, the, how was the album received, the first album with you as vocalist? I think it was received all right. I mean, yeah, I, really well. I mean, maybe it was a bit of a strange choice for Sitting Hooks in you as the first single, just because it was probably wasn't represented of the album as a whole, and it maybe gave some people the impression we we kind of gone into this kind of rock pop direction, uh, where something like Easter or an invited guest might have been a better choice. But even so, I mean, every every night of the tour, we we kind of go out with Stephen. Maybe you'd see half the audience were kind of making their mind up. But by the end of the th- probably third or the fourth song, they were with us 100%. So every night was just like a celebration. Yeah, my favourite band still exists. It's changed, but it, it's different, but it's still 
an amazing man. How did it change? Because, I mean, you, you come from a different background, don't you, Steve, to fish? I mean, you, you're more of a sort of a punky guy? Oh, it's so, I mean... I mean, I hate he labels, but I mean, yeah, you, you've got I mean, a different background to him. That's the thing. I mean, people always stick everything into pigeonholes and genres. Mm. Um, I guess my um, the Europeans had been a bit more... The first album was quite a post-punk sort of thing. It was quite uptight, intense, a bit industrial. Our second album was much more... Um, widescreen and and you know not not a million miles away from what I've since done with Marillion so the the you know the genres that get thrown on things um you think it's been artificial with the labels yeah I mean at the end of the day we're all just musicians if we're lyricists we're writing words um if we're musicians we're we're making music doing what we do and so you know you can meet I've, I've met people over the years are members of the Talking Heads who were listening to progressive rock music and then they're in a band called the Talking Heads that's got nothing to do with that and is amazing, amazing groundbreaking music in its own in its own right. So at the end of the day you're either a creative person or you're not and, and all of those people who sort of um, pioneered or, or what created what is now called the progressive rock genre back in the 70s that were that genre meant nothing to them. They were just creative guys doing interesting things, writing interesting words. Okay, they weren't writing three-minute pop songs. Perhaps that's the only way you can make a distinction. But then the length of a song that you write is something that you decide while you're writing it. Again, it's got nothing to do with, with feeling like you have to. That songs tend to have a natural length. And we've written songs that are three minutes long, and we've written the songs that are 20 minutes long. And, um, you know, the, the, the 20 minutes long ones, I guess I just had more words. So, yeah, they That's the natural length they needed. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's not about going, oh, we really must make this kind of music or this kind of music. I, I don't think any creative artist worth their salt doesn't think like that at all. They're just trying to paint a picture. Earlier on, Steve, you talked about some of your influences, including Pink Floyd and Genesis. You were at times unfavourably compared to Genesis, perhaps unfairly too. I, d- I think in the very early days, I think the, the, the Genesis influence was, was there and it was really obvious in the music. Whether that's still true now, I have no idea. Because I don't think it is, I don't think it's true at all. I think... 99% of the Genesis thing comes from one section in the song Grendel, which bears a certain resemblance to a section from Supper's Ready. And Fish used to wear face paint, and, you know, it's very sort of... A bit theatrical. like Peter Gabriel in that sense. Yeah, exactly. But the music's never really... It's never. It's always had a very different emphasis than Genesis. And I think when Steve joined, it just went completely away from, from, from that. I mean, he went away from it over the course of the subsequent two or three albums, but when Steve joined... Yeah, I just I can't personally see the Genesis influence at all. Yeah, so it's a bit like the point you're making earlier, Steve, about the labelling and how counterproductive that can be. Now you're in the band now, so you're obviously recording and you're touring. So you know it's not just a gig. You're very much part of this band and and, and central to the band's future. Yeah, it's heavy a, responsibility. Yeah, it's a heavy responsibility. Um, you know, every time we we come round to writing a new album. Uh, I feel like getting on a plane and, you know, flying to a cave on the other side of the world to, to escape it because, uh, you know, there's, uh, I want to write something great and, I, and I, I never think I'm capable. 
So it is daunting. Um, apart from that, there's, there's not really any pressure. I mean, obviously, I'm at the front in the middle um, when we play live, but I, lo I love being in that place. You know, I love singing to people, um, and I love that, that feeling of having all that power wrapped around you and all of those groovy characters and, and you know, uh, road crew and everything that goes with touring. I love it. Um, so that's not a pressure situation. It's, uh, it's a joy. So, I mean, you really get off on that. I mean, the idea that you're actually there and there's the adrenaline flowing, you're on stage, there's, you know, people there who you've got to look after because they've paid for a ticket, you want to perform anyway, the band are there. It's, you, you really love all that environment. Yeah, I saw The Who in the 70s uh, on, the, on the Who by Numbers tour at Bellevue and they came onto the stage like their lives depended on it. And I learned a lot that night. And, uh, I'd, I'd been given the ticket, I hadn't bought it. I just kind of ambled along as not a particularly huge Who fan. And they were the best band I ever saw by a country mile because, because they came on stage totally with the attitude that this is important. This what we're about to do really matters. And they taught me that you, you if you're in the amazing privileged position of being able to walk on a stage in front of a thousand people, um, you need to earn that and you need to own it. And you, you know, the, the, the biggest crime you can ever commit is to walk onto a stage and stare at your shoes or, or not, not give of yourself because all those people are there. I don't really think about what they've paid for a ticket. It's not, it's not the money, it's about the faith. It's about the faith and the privilege of being in front of people. Roger Daltrey is also, like you, a great front man. I mean, are there any things that you you saw Roger do that you thought, well, maybe I can learn from that? Just commitment, really. And that wasn't just from Roger. It was from Pete. It was from Keith. Uh, you know, it was it was from John too. You weren't perhaps so aware of it from Entwistle because he was a bit more self-contained, and he, I guess he was the rock that all the mad planets flew around within the Who. But um, commitment. Okay, let's talk about the Afraid of the Sunlight album, which included Out of This World, the Donald Campbell track, which uh, has been much written about and is much loved, Steve. Uh, yes, uh, I mean, I think Steve needs to explain how the lyric idea came about from that track. Um, but yeah, we were fortunate enough to be invited by Bill Smith up to the raising of the Bluebird up at Coniston. Uh, I actually took some photos for him on the end of the jetty there with the world's press on the beach about half a mile away uh, and it was an incredibly moving um, experience really uh, but Bill obviously was inspired by the song and by Steve's words um, and yeah you even signed his funeral didn't you? Yes that, that was the most amazing experience because um, just, just to explain what happened we'd, we'd written this song out of this world which grew out of just a, two or three lines that I'd hurriedly written down remembering my mum crying when, when she saw the bluebird crashing on the news when I was a kid um, and this chap Bill Smith heard our song decided he would go to Coniston and try and find the bluebird um, spent two years looking found it, brought it to the surface and then about a year after that the phone rings and, and it was Gina Campbell Donald's daughter saying um, you know they've found Donald's body and, and she wants to give him a proper funeral in Coniston Church and would I sing the song in the church so then I went up there um, to Coniston 
the day before the funeral to uh, to sound check the equipment. Went over to the pub to get a bit of lunch, and the, and and it was 9/11, and the the twin towers were coming down. So that night was sleeping in the Windermere Powerboat Club, um, which uh, Gina's still a member and an honoured guest, as you can imagine. Um, lying in the dark, just thinking, what on earth am I doing here? You know, I should be at home with my family. This could be World World War Three. What's going to happen next? As, as everybody did that day, no one knew whether that was it or whether that was the beginning of something much more horrific. Everyone remembers where they were on 9-11. So you were, you were at Coniston Water in Windermere. And how did the song get written? Was it, was it written at that point? No, the, the song, the, it was the, the opposite. The song was written and that point happened because of the song. The, the guy who went to, to find the bluebird went there because he'd heard the song, been moved by it and decided, made a private decision, I'm going to go and find that shows how powerful music can be. Since then, renovations taken place, Steve. Yes, Bill, uh, who's actually an engineer by trade, um, spent the last however many years it's been renovating and rebuilding the Bluebird, fitting new engines, having parts fabricated, uh, and actually ran it on the water. Was it last year up in Scotland at the uh, lock, didn't he? On the Isle of Butte. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you know, the, I think the plan is to try and run it on on uh, Coniston again. But I think there's a lot of um, local politics involved, and and now there's like various claims as to the ownership of of, of the, the craft itself. I think they just want to stick it in a museum and and build very much of the feeling that you know the boat has a soul and it, it should be run on the water. Um, but yeah, no, it, I, I dropped into his workshop on the way back from Edinburgh uh, about a year and a half ago and saw it, and it's just an in- awe-inspiring sight. Well, you were mentioning Estonia before, Steve, so let's now go to uh, Estonia, and you're about to say... Well, that was another strange coincidence. I was, it turns out it was 25 years ago that the Estonia sank, um, so it must have been about... 24 years ago, I was on a plane coming back from Stockholm um, and I was sat one side of the aisle and this chap was sat on the other side of the aisle and he, 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 we kept making eye contact and he seemed he seemed like, he, you know, he kept kind of giving me the old, uh, as if he wanted to talk to me, and I was like, good afternoon, how are you doing? And we got talking and um, I s- he said, "What you, what, you know, you're going back home. I said, yeah, I'm going back home to England. I've been in Stockholm doing some interviews. I said, what about you? And he, he said, oh, I've been making a, a movie um, about the sinking of the Estonia. And I said, oh, wow, that's, that's interesting. And what, why, were you, why are you doing that? And he said, well, I was on it. I said, what? And it turns out he was the sole, sole British survivor. Uh, his name's Paul Barney. And um, he proceeded to, to give me a, a moment-by-moment account of everything that happened on that fateful night. He'd been asleep in the uh, restaurant. He, he, he was asleep on a bench. He fell onto the, the deck um, as, the, as, as the craft was now leaning at 45 degrees. He climbed up the ceiling and out of a side window, um, ended up on the deck. Um, the ship was, was swaying violently side to side. Uh, and he told me the whole, quite a long story, moment by moment, of how he'd ended up in the sea for five hours, um, how many people he'd seen go to their deaths that night, and 
waves crashing over the the um, life raft that he was clung to, which was then upside down. Um, and I was in tears listening to him. And touring, how do you manage touring and studio work? I mean, it's an incredibly intensive, tough schedule. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just what you get used to, I suppose. We, we don't tour anywhere near as much as we once did. Um, so we take a long time to write and record albums these days. So you probably have, you know, the best part of two years in the, in the, in the writing and recording process and, the, and then the promotion of the album and then maybe three to four months of touring. And it's a very different kind of mindset, you know. Some people are born to do one or, or, or the other. I mean, I always feel more comfortable recording than performing. I think you have to kind of be, be, almost become an actor and pretend when you're performing. It's not, not something I feel kind of natural at. But, you know, you kind of get used to it and, and you can enjoy it. Um, but it's a, the whole creative process is what excites me the most. And as a band, how collegiate is it? How does that creative process work? Do you each contribute songs or do you then pitch songs in and, and all, all contribute? How does it, how does it work, Stu? We're, we're, we're quite a peculiar beast. I, I believe you two are the same, actually. One of the few other bands that write like we write. Um, and we write by jamming. So we turn up in the studio every day and we simply jam. Um, so it, it's all in the moment. It's all being recorded. Most of it's rubbish. Most of it gets thrown away. Um, but it's listened to after the fact, sometimes months after the fact. And um, we listen through it. Sometimes we listen through it together. Sometimes we leave our producer to just listen through it. And then he'll come to us and say, look, this is quite interesting, what happened here? And we'll snip out little moments. So you might have months and months of jams that lead to just a handful of moments of seconds that are interesting. And, and the reason they're interesting is, is perhaps because they're like nothing you've ever done. Um, and so it gives you the opportunity to, to make music that is literally like nothing you've ever done before. And you can make that happen by choosing those things. Um, so it, it's a way of forcing inspiration outside of that narrow path that you otherwise might have just walked had you been a singer-songwriter. You know, your fingers will naturally fall to a certain place on a piano or a guitar, uh, and you'll, you, 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 one could argue you'll, you'll end up writing the same kind of songs over and over again. Working by jamming forces you into areas you, you perhaps could only could only go to by mistake um, but if it's strong you'll know it when you hear it you might know, you might know it more hearing it than you did playing it because there's two kinds of music there's music that's fun to play and there's music that's fun to listen to and they're, they're, not, all, they're, they're not, not always the same, same thing, thing. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing, you've actually been quite innovative and you've used crowdfunding to raise money. I mean, how did that come about? Wow, well, it all started off with a bunch of Americans at the very, very dawn of the internet before web browsers existed. I think there were just uh, things called uh, notice boards. Um, uh, it was all before I really understood any of it. But the Americans were onto this thing before we really got onto it in Europe. And... Uh, a couple of guys in America had heard that we weren't going to tour with, with our album, This Strange Engine. 
and one of them had said, hell no, in a typical American fashion, I'm going to open a bank account and I'm appealing to everybody out there, all these other internet geeks, um, to, to, to donate money and we'll, we'll, we'll give them the shortfall and bring them over here. And they did, and they gave us $60,000, which they'd raised themselves. Um, and we went over there and we did a little tour. And while we were doing the tour, we, we ran into um, a, um, a college kid in um, Cleveland, Ohio, called Eric Nielsen who knew how to program websites. And we brought him back to England because we were all thinking to ourselves, this internet thing's the future. We better get You're on very it. very far-sighted. We better get on it. And everyone was taking the mickey, you know, if you, if you had a website, you know, back then it was all very geeky and everybody was taking the mickey. Um, they're not taking the mickey anymore. It's part of you know, everyday life. It's integral to life. life yeah, it? it's integral to life. Well, Stephen C, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, well, East London's the most vibrant area of London by far. Like, I spent a lot. I love what East London Radio is all about because it's all about the community. It's it's about bringing different people together, different views, and I love talking, <laughs> which is yeah. So that's right up my street as well. Uh, we all do it for for the love of it because we love radio. We love what we do, and East London Radio is such a good community radio. We are East London Radio. That's Steve Hogarth and Steve Rotheray from Marillion, and hopefully they'll be on tour during 2021. Keep listening for further details. And before that, Brian Prothero, my thanks to all three guests. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Stay listening to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives soon. From Whitechapel to Romford, from the docks to Epping Forest, this is East London Radio. Hello everybody, I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan, and this is the Corner of Grey Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Grey Street.